You're listening to. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to. Sex gets real. Sex gets real. Sex gets real. Sex gets real. With Don Sarah. With Don Sarah. Thanks. Bye. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Sex Gets Real. I want to start by talking about some current events that are going down in the U.S., specifically in Charlottesville with the Nazi white supremacist domestic terrorism rally that unfolded and led to, unfortunately, a whole bunch of violence. The first thing I just want to go on record as saying is this show is about overturning oppression at every intersection, and that includes overturning racism. I am doing so much work to educate myself about white supremacy, the fact that I grew up benefiting from white supremacy, and the fact that we cannot have sexual liberation. We cannot have a sexually free society. We cannot have a society built on healthy relationships or body sovereignty or body autonomy or emotional intelligence the way that we all want and deserve if any system of oppression is in place. So whether that's racism or ableism or sexism or any of the other isms, We've got to do the work to overturn that, and that means getting really uncomfortable. So if you're white and you're wondering what can you do, I will be linking to two different articles that are both in the show notes for this episode, as well as at sexgetsreal.com slash EP174 for episode 174. And both of these articles list specific places where you can donate your money to help with reparations, to help support people who are doing the work on the ground. This is not a new phenomenon. We have never, since the colonization of the United States, or Canada for that matter, or anywhere else that has had colonization, we have never had a time that was not based on white supremacy. We have never known liberation. And we need to be using our voices and our time and our energy, especially if we are white, to be doing the work to overturn racism. This is not on black people to do. They should not be educating us. They should not be the ones doing the labor around racism. It is our job as the privileged white folks to do this work. Just like it is the work of men to be undoing sexism and it is the work of non-fat people to be overturning fat phobia and it is the work of cis people to be overturning transphobia. The people that are suffering the most from oppression should not be the ones responsible for fixing the system. So if you actually want to do something and you can't physically put your body in the place where racist rallies are happening, then we all need to put our money where our mouth is. I've already donated $100 to the NAACP in Charlottesville, and these two articles that I'm going to link to include links to an anti-racist legal fund for helping folks in Charlottesville, to the safety pin box that provides funds to people fighting on the ground, to uh, Black Lives Matter in 
in Charlottesville. And there's another article from Refinery29 that links to the Charlottesville chapter of the NAACP, Charlottesville Pride, um, a community organization, Legal Aid Justice, and a couple of others. So please check those links out. Please use your voice to be talking to relatives that make stupid, horrible, violent, racist comments, even if they seem like a joke. We need to be having these conversations, and it is on us. If we want to live in a place where we can love how we want and be in our bodies without violence and have the kinds of sex that we want, none of that is possible until we're undoing all of these frameworks of oppression. So now let's dive into this week's episode. I have two people here with me this week, Rachel Hills and Jenny Runk. The three of us geek out all about something called the sex myth. Rachel wrote a critically acclaimed book called The Sex Myth that examines uh, kind of the myth and all of the outshoots of the, that one myth that inform the way we perform sex in our culture based on kind of the most recent iteration of how sex is unfolding in our society. And that book has been turned into a play called The Sex Myth that Jenny Runk is starring in in New York all this week. So if you're near New York, be sure to check out the play. It's only running for five days. But we have this fantastic conversation about um, sex myths that have held us back and cultural expectations around pleasure and relationships. And it's a really fun conversation. Jenny talks about what it was like for her to um, grapple with her story of coming out as a lesbian. And she also talks about being a plus size model and what it's like to inspire people through that and to also be the recipient of endless hate because she's in a plus-sized body. So let me tell you a little bit about Rachel and Jenny, and then we'll jump into the episode. Also, don't forget that my um, every other week call, the sex is a social skill call, is a super fun way for all of us to just kind of sit around and geek out. It's kind of like sitting in a coffee shop and talking about things that matter with a whole bunch of other really rad folks, but we do it virtually online using video and hanging out and talking about really cool stuff. So if you want to join me, there's a link also in the show notes and at sexgetsreal.com. So check that out because I'd love to have you there. So Rachel Hills is an Australian journalist, TED speaker, and writer based in New York. Her critically acclaimed book, The Sex Myth, is a call for a generation to question how systems of power pull at the strings of our sexual experience. A devised play based on the book will debut in New York City in August 2017, which is actually this week. And Jenny Runk is an American model represented by JAG models in New York. Born in Georgia and raised in Missouri, Jenny was discovered at a PetSmart while volunteering for a cat adoption service. A proud and recently married member of the LGBTQ community, Jenny is passionate about inclusion and empowerment for all people. Considered plus size by the fashion industry, Jenny starred in the H&M Summer Swimwear campaign, graced the April cover of Marie Claire France, and stars in the straight, 
Curve documentary, where she shares her compelling perspective on the future of her industry. So here is the three of us talking all about the sex myth. Welcome to Sex Gets Real, Rachel and Jenny. We've got a little group chat going on today. Thanks so much for having us. Hi. You're so welcome. I just finished reading your book, Rachel, The Sex Myth, which is also a play that, Jenny, you are in. And reading your book (laughs) felt really validating because it's basically what this whole show is about, (laughs) which is kind of deconstructing so many of the myths and the cultural expectations that we have that are causing so many of us distress and pain and othering. And I was just so excited to see um, you put words to things I talk about all the time, but in a much more eloquent way. So thank you for that. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, that's what I want when people read the book, for them to feel seen and understood and to maybe understand themselves a little better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something that like really stuck out to me as I was reading, kind of the irony of how we've moved out of a somewhat sexually conservative kind of cultural soup where, you know, um, sex looked a very specific way and it was only had within the context of marriage and And we had these very, you know, kind of um, stuck, stiff rules for everybody to abide by into another cultural soup that kind of has the illusion of freedom and choice and liberation. But it actually has just as many rules for all of us to follow in order to kind of fit in and be seen as normal. And that is to be very sexual, very adventurous, very open about our sexuality, to talk about how empowering it is. And yet it still has this kind of undercurrent of control and, and conformity. Yeah, exactly. And I think the interesting thing is that those two cultural soups kind of coexist at the same time. So in the book, I tend to focus more on the latter kind, because I guess that's what I personally felt more affected by particularly when I was younger and that was the standard that I was measuring myself against and feeling inadequate when I compared myself to it but I think that those old rules about what not to do definitely obviously still exist as well and I'm wondering for you Jenny um, I saw a picture that you uploaded on it was either Facebook or Twitter reading the sex myth and I'm wondering for you you know, what was it like to kind of read the book? Did you find some validation in things you'd experienced or did it raise big questions? What was that like? I learned a lot reading the book. I actually, I read it through twice. I read it through the first time. And then the second time I read it, I read through it with like a pen and was marking pages and circling things and making notes. Um, And the whole time that I was reading it, I was just thinking, this is amazing. I'm so happy that this is a thing that's in the world that people can read and get so much validation from hearing other people's stories about how, you know, they don't really feel normal or they don't think they're normal or they're worried about being normal when in actuality, all of those thoughts and fears, you know, not only does everybody have them, but they're completely unfounded because normal doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. For me, for a long time, and the listeners are very familiar with this story, so I'll say the super fast version. But, you know, for me, I spent so many years feeling like um, I was not going to 
um, ever find someone or never be good enough to find the kind of person I wanted to find because I was in a fat body. That, you know, Mm. the story we're told, of course, is that to be a woman and to be sexual and sexually desirable is a great thing, but only if you fit in certain types of ideals of being young and thin and white and upper class. And even then, of course, there's lots of, of stumbling blocks, but I kind of felt like I should just settle for whatever came my way because I was fat. And if I held out too long, then I was never going to find anyone. And of course, kind of the myth under that is that you have to be with someone in order to be worthy and to have a a life well lived, um, which is a whole different myth. But I'm wondering for both of you, um, you know, what, what myth do you feel like kind of drove you or that you kind of clung to that, that you really needed to release and, or you're still working through <laughs> as I am, uh, that you're still working through, you know, that, that can offer you kind of that, that sense of maybe I don't have to tell this story anymore. I think for me, like for you, it was very much tied to these ideas of female desirability, which is, you know, it's so much tied to what the sex myth is about. And it's this idea that not only is your desirability tied to the way that you look, which of course is not so much true in practice, but this idea that your worth as a human is tied to whether or not other people desire you and to whether or not people desire you in a sexual way. And for me, I spent basically the first half of my 20s and my late teens single, which now that I'm in my mid 30s, seems like not such a long time to be single at all. But of course, when you're in your late teens and your early 20s, it feels completely interminable. And for me, as I write about in the opening pages of the book, I felt this real contrast, uh, this real conflict where on the one hand, I knew that I was, you know, a nice person, a fun person, somebody that people enjoyed being around. And I also knew that I was working really hard at that time on being seen as being attractive in a kind of conventional way. I mean, probably to the detriment of my actual attractiveness in retrospect. But I spent a lot of time, you know, doing my hair, dieting, trying to make myself into this hot woman. And despite, you know, being a likable person and despite trying really hard to be hot, I didn't have very many partners or very many romantic opportunities. So I felt like it signified that there was something kind of deeply wrong and deeply undesirable about me. And it made me feel really terrible about myself. I feel like many of us can can uh, empathize with, with those feelings and have been there and or are there. What about for you, Jenny? Um, I think that I definitely, uh, as I, when I was younger, I definitely paid more attention to those myths surrounding what women should be or shouldn't be. Um, you know, especially before I started modeling, before I even knew that plus size modeling existed, I was constantly comparing myself to other women and women in magazines, especially. Um, and they were all way smaller than me, um, visibly smaller than me. And I was always, you know, wondering like, why don't I look like that? Why can't I look like that? What's wrong with me? Uh, and it wasn't until I started plus size modeling and I was exposed to this world of all these all of these women who were modeling and super successful and confident and they were above a size 12, just like me, uh, that I realized that there's more than one way to be beautiful. And just because, you know, there's this one idea of beauty that we see over and over again, that doesn't mean that's the only way to be beautiful. Um, 
that's, you know, that's just not true. Yeah. Yeah. Something that comes up a lot on the show here, cause I, I take listener questions and answer them and, you know, I've gotten probably thousands of questions at this point, but there is this, um, cultural distress that I constantly see for people who are in relationship around a fear of not having enough sex and or not having the right kinds of sex and then feeling this this great deal of pain in not knowing how to navigate wanting different levels of sex than a partner or wanting to have kinkier sex or less kinky sex than a partner. And, you know, I think it's really interesting how the sex that we are or are not having seems to take up an awful lot of our time and energy culturally. And in our personal relationships, I think it also is a deep source of pain to the point where we often forget that there's lots of other things being offered to us by the relationships that we're in. And I thought that was something else that was just really wonderfully highlighted by your work, Rachel, around how we're kind of culturally conditioned. You talked about Disney movies to, yeah. to see like romantic attraction and romantic relationships as the superior peak experience of relationship that we need to value romantic relationships above friendships and family relationships because that is what we should all be striving for. And then, of course, kind of the unspoken rule is if you don't have that or if you don't have the right kind, you're missing out somehow on living your best life, you know, to, to co-opt Oprah's phrase. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just see so much pain. And I wonder, you know, like how much of this pain is, is actual pain from our, our internal experiences and how much of it is pain because we've soaked up all of these stories around what we're supposed to be doing and how often we're supposed to be doing it and then internalized to that so we believe that it's actually self-driven when it's more culturally driven. I mean, that's absolutely the billion-dollar question, isn't it? And, you know, I choose billion-dollar rather than million-dollar because there are billion-dollar industries that, yeah. you know, make their money off as being anxiety, uh, being anxious about these questions. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of impossible to, to tell the difference between the two, to be able to differentiate what are our kind of genuine anxieties that are attached to what we personally want as individuals and what are the culturally created anxieties. Because, you know, if there's anything that's innate to human beings, it's the fact that we are social and cultural creatures and that we make meaning out of things and that we, you know, we do that individually and collectively as well. Uh, but yeah, that idea that, that sexual relationships are the most important, the most intimate, the most fulfilling uh, is, you know, very much at the root of the sex myth. But I think what's also at the root of that, and I know I'm totally preaching to the converted here talking to you, <laughs> is this idea that even within these romantic sexual relationships, it's this, particularly in heterosexual relationships, it's this one act that defines your intimacy. So it's not how often you're kissing or touching each other or cuddling or, you know, having oral or manual sex. It's how often a penis is going into a vagina. And if that isn't happening a certain number of times a week, then, oh no, your relationship must be in trouble. Yeah. Something else that I found really powerful about kind of this myth that 
you've written about extensively, and, and we're going to talk about the play in a few minutes too, which I'm so excited about. Something that really struck me was you were talking about how so many of the stories that are coming out now around the sexually liberated woman specifically um, of these erotic memoirs that have become very popular and sex blogs and, and, you know, kind of being very out about our sex lives is that it's less about our pleasure and more about this empowerment of being able to sell ourselves successfully, to, to get people interested in our stories, to show that we are successful in finding partners, that, that we are, are successful in trying all the things and being really adventurous. And that it's, it seems to be, um, much less about, we just really wanted to genuinely have this experience and to be in the experience and allow it to be a part of our lives and then to move forward from it. And more about, I need to show you all the ways that I am the most forward thinking, the kinkiest, the most adventurous, whatever it is. And then the more people that consume it, the more successful I am. Yeah. And I mean, those words selling and consumption are really interesting because when I when I talk to people about these things, they they normally jump to thinking that we're talking about sex work when we talk about selling ourselves through sex. But actually, as you said, we're talking about the creation of a self. So the creation of a self, both within our own minds, like who we perceive ourselves to be, but then also who we're telling other people we are in the world. And of course, there are other ways that we do this. We do it through our clothing. We do it through the way we talk. We do it through our conversation, through, you know, the pictures we post to Instagram and the the holidays or vacations we go on. But we also do that through the stories that we tell about our sex lives in particular, as much as we do through the sex we are or are not having. The first time I really encountered that, that disconnect was, I don't know, in the early 2000s, I was doing in-home sex toy parties. Yeah. And it was with a terrible company that had problematic products, which I didn't know at the time, but it gave me an opportunity to interact with thousands of women one-on-one. And it was fascinating to me how in the group setting during the party, everyone, for the most part, there would usually be a couple of shy people that, you know, everyone kind of knew they were showing up to be with friends, but they were a little nervous about the sex part. But, you know, for the most part, it was about being loud and boisterous and talking about all the sex you'd been having or that you've been fantasizing about and, you know, being just very like sex in the city-ish about their sex. But then in private, one-on-one, over and over and over again, I had women telling me they hadn't had sex in years. They'd never had an orgasm. They didn't know until I told them that it was okay to masturbate or to bring a toy with them into the bedroom. There was so much like pain and fear and just feeling utterly alone and unseen because it wasn't okay to be seen in that way. And that's Mm. when I really started seeing some of this um, performative kind of cost that we were having, especially as women, you know, I think we know that there's a big cost for men too around masculinity and being required to perform in a certain way to be seen as a real man. But even, you know, around sex, seeing over and over and over again, women 
behaving one way in front of their friends and then in private so desperately needing someone to just see them and say like it's okay you're not broken yeah and this is absolutely something that I did a lot myself and probably still do to an extent but I remember at my 22nd birthday party a gay guy I was friends with uh, gave me a birthday card which had a picture of a naked man on it and the inscription on the inside was something like you know Rachel some people would be offended by this but not you uh, which is true I wasn't offended by it um, but it, I think it showed that he saw me as being this confident, bawdy, you know, very sexual woman, which was definitely how I was presenting myself and in some ways who I was. But on the other hand, at that stage of my life, I was also still a virgin and you're desperately insecure about my desirability. And it was a realization that I had as I went into my mid-20s and started working on this book that so many other people were carrying around not necessarily the same insecurities, but their own insecurities about not living up to that ideal that, you know, drove me to want to start working in and researching this area uh, because it was both freeing for me to realize I wasn't alone, but also fascinating to explore. We talked a lot about these kinds of these kinds of things in like the first couple of weeks of rehearsal. Um, as you know, as we got started, just more understanding the theories in the book and understanding what we were talking about, what we were doing. And as we were talking about these things and our own stories and, you know, the way that we each felt about how we should behave and how we should be and how we shouldn't behave and how we shouldn't be, every single one of us sort of came to this conclusion that it was way, way easier to come up with a long and detailed list of ways we should not be than any idea of how we should be. It seemed like, you know, every, everything that we, everything, every idea of normal that we had, it was just easier to say, don't do this. You shouldn't be like this. You shouldn't act like this. And, you know, when the question was reversed, like, okay, so then what should you be? It was actually kind of hard to come up with an answer. I think that's so powerful. And, and I think, you know, what we often find when we start making those lists of all the things we shouldn't be is they're so deeply contradictory of we should both be pure and innocent and at the same time, like sexually available, or we shouldn't want too much sex because then we have some type of sex addiction, but we should want sex enough that it's kind of meeting some type of superficial bar around, you know, the frequency that we're having. Otherwise, it's sad and something's wrong and we need medicine or, you know, we're undesirable. And, and so I love that. I love that in talking about what is normal and how do we actually fit in, it's not actually a thing it's more all the things that it shouldn't be. It's kind of like, you know, looking at like a black hole. It's like what's not there is actually what defines the thing, which I think is really, really interesting. Yeah, I talk about that in the book. In my chapter on normality, I talk about how every person I interviewed, I would ask them the very difficult question of what is normal. And people would always struggle to answer that question or they'd try to answer it in a progressive PC kind of way, like everything is normal or there's no such thing as normal. But then when I asked them, okay, well, what's abnormal then? People found it very easy to answer that question. And then when I asked them, have you ever felt abnormal? The vast majority of people would say yes. 
Yeah. It's interesting because I think too, um, I've had Connor Habib on the show, who is a porn performer and very much a modern day philosopher. And he thinks unlike anyone that I've ever met. Um, but he's a really big fan of thinking about like, what does the future look like outside of all of the existing paradigms? Like if we don't like the current structures we're living in that are based on oppression and you know, conformity, then what does a world look like without those things? And so very forward thinking and sometimes scares the heck out of me with where mm. he's going. But one of the things he's talked about is how, you know, we're, we still have a very sex negative culture, but there has been a swing that is growing of sex positivity, of accepting you know, basically that you can be sexual or asexual, that you can be gay or straight or trans, and that as long as we just validate each other's identities, it's all okay, and, and there's no wrong way to have sex. But ultimately, that swing is still on the same pendulum. And so we're not actually breaking ourselves free of any paradigm. We're simply responding to the paradigm, which actually in turn then keeps us trapped in that same paradigm. And I think so much of what you talk about is, is that same thing around, you know, now we're performing that we are very sexually free and that this is about empowerment and that, you know, there's, there is no um, normal or abnormal, everything's okay. But then when you start scratching the surface, there's actually a lot of rules that we're still operating under. And so we're all kind of still trapped in a paradigm that's causing all of us a lot of, I don't know, confusion and constantly worrying like we're right on the brink of something going terribly wrong. And so we have to um, constantly like self-monitor and self-compare to try and stay okay and normal and not be the ostracized one, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I, and I think that's something I probably still do to some degree. Yeah. And I'm wondering for you, um, Jenny, I know that you've been working on the play, the sex myth and, and working with others and, and in developing stories and how you're going to kind of present this really powerful piece to an audience that might not have any clue about the sex myth that we're all living in. They might not listen to podcasts like this. And for you, like, how has it changed the way that you're moving through your life and, and the way that you're either hearing other people talk about sex or the ways that you're even approaching your own body and the way you experience your pleasure in sex? Like, have you found you've started asking more questions or just noticing things more than you had before? I think my biggest takeaway so far from this has just been, um, you know, this is such an incredible learning experience for me because not only am I talking about, you know, my own identity as a lesbian and my journey in discovering that and not only like learning how to be a woman, how to be, you know, how to be an attractive woman, but then like, how do I be a lesbian? You know, mm -hmm. when I came out there, I didn't really have any uh, homosexual role models on TV. Like I didn't really know what that looked like. There was no guidebook for that. Like I had no idea what I was doing. So then I had this like, you know, second hurdle of like, okay, I'm still trying to figure out how to be a woman. Like now, how do I behave as a lesbian? Like, how do I present as a lesbian? Like, what am I supposed to do now? Um, you know, and, and talking about my own story, my own sort of self discovery in that way. And then also sharing with all of the other cast members, all of their stories and how, 
they had um, each of them had their own moments in their lives when they had to sort of come to terms with them with their identity and themselves and uh, you know and I, and it was just noticing a lot of parallels like every story is completely unique and totally different and offers a really really interesting window into like every different uh, every different narrative but at the same time there were definitely parallels at the same time like I think all of us had a moment where we were like am I, am I normal? Am I okay? Is this, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Um, and had to find sort of our own way of coming to terms with that. Yeah. Yeah. And in my experience, it's like a continuous grappling of just like, does this still work for me? Is this still my identity? Does this still feel okay? And, and, and trying to give myself permission and forgiveness to not always be a hundred percent certain and to sometimes just say like, I'm figuring it out. Even if I don't have the answer, that's still okay. I think that's also like a, a tough place that we have to come to when we start actually realizing maybe our identity differs from how everyone perceives us and what we've been told we are. I think definitely our the way that we see ourselves is totally different than the way other people see us. And I think that that goes for everybody. Um, and in, in my scene, in the performance, I talk a lot about that, how I sort of tried to align my self identity with the way I thought people were seeing me or the way that I thought people were thinking that I should be. Um, and sort of first trying to figure out what people thought I should be and then trying to figure out how to fit into that whether it felt natural or not um, until I finally hopefully came to a time in my life where I just don't care anymore. And I'm just, I am who I am. And that's that. (laughs) Yeah. So we've kind of tickled listeners a little bit about the play and I had an opportunity to review the playbook and, and it sounds phenomenal. This very like collaborative audience involved space where the performers get a chance to share stories around their own sexual experiences and and to offer the audience a chance to start actually asking different questions and how that can be really confronting for audience members. So I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of how this came about and and what it's really like to actually birth this thing and, and put it in front of people who maybe don't know what they're getting into when they walk in the door. I'll talk about how it came about, and then Jenny, you want to talk about what it's like to birth it. Uh, so it came about because I I do a lot of speaking on college campuses since the book came out, and um, at one of the first college campuses I spoke at in 2015, a young woman called Hannah Larson, who is now the director of the show in New York, uh, came up to me afterwards, and we had a chat, um, and then a few months later, she got in touch with me, uh, asking me if, if I'd be open to her turning the book into a play. So this would have been early last year. And at that time, she was still a university student at Northeastern University, and uh, she she wanted to put on a show on her campus. And I said yes, because the idea of the sexsmith being turned into a play was like a little secret dream that I had harbored. And I went up and did a workshop with the cast members, and I saw the first version of the play in Boston in June last year. And I just thought it was just absolutely fantastic uh, to to see the ideas that I talked about in the book translated by other people. Um, 
was just phenomenal and to hear you know their beautiful complex powerful stories which was so different to my own which I think is part of the magic of the show that everybody's story is different but yet in that diversity we find something so human that we can really relate to and and it was really powerful to see how by translating the book into a, you know, a theater experience, we created something that was both more powerful for the performers because they go through this six to eight week process of developing their monologues and really exploring these issues. But we also create something that is really powerful for the audience because particularly on that college level where it was happening, you know, you're hearing stories from people within your own community, which means that you're confronted by it in a really wonderful way. So it's not just some abstract story of somebody else. It's somebody that you may know or who knows somebody that you know. So, yeah, I loved the play so much that I decided it had to spread. And I started working with Hannah on the playbook that you read, which is designed to help people put on this show in their own communities on a grassroots level. And started working to raise the money to put on the show in New York this year, uh, which will be going up in two weeks at Here Art Center on August 16th. Yay! That's so exciting. Yeah, I'm, we're, we're pretty excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine, like, you know, I'm a book lover, so just being in a book for me is an experience, but I think there's something um, really powerful around getting to see people share their stories and for those stories to be really personal. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's not a fictional character. It's not a fantasy world. It's like here are my lived experiences and you have, you get to sit in that place with me and it might be really uncomfortable. It might be really funny, but like, let's be in each other's stories for a while. That's a pretty rare experience for an audience. Yeah. And it's really moving. I mean, just as in the Boston production, none of the stories in the New York production reflect my own, you know, in, in the most obvious ways. But as I as I heard each of them, I was so moved and I could relate to the underlying emotion. Like, Jenny, I remember I heard yours a couple of weeks ago. And um, even though I wasn't supposed to be giving professional feedback, I had to give audience feedback because I was just so moved by Jenny's performance and I could relate to so much of it, even though our stories on a surface level are so different. So, Jenny, what has it been like to be involved in a performance piece where the whole point is for you to kind of bury yourself and to be vulnerable in, in a way that uh, I think is both really beautiful and brave. And at the same time, probably a little bit, (laughs) a little bit scary and nerve wracking. Like what's that been like for you? You know, I think uh, because I I went to school for creative writing and I was uh, very passionate about poetry. And when I first moved to New York, I did a lot of performance poetry So I had a little bit of experience in writing something very, very personal and then sharing it on stage with an audience. Um, Thankfully, I had a little bit of experience with that because it's terrifying. It's actually very terrifying. And it's it's really, really hard. The first few weeks that we got started in rehearsal, well, you know, before we uh, had a performance to actually rehearse and perform and memorize, we were just doing a lot of talking about our individual stories and how the sex myth has affected all of us. And, uh, you know, as I was saying, our struggles with finding normalcy in our own lives. The first few weeks, I think almost every single time we met, at least one or two people were crying at one point or another. Um, Because it's, you know, 
you're not only looking at these things yourself, but you're sharing them with a group of people you just met. But at the same time, everybody in the group is doing it. So, you know, in some ways it felt a little bit like being in school again. It felt a little bit like class. And then in other ways, it sort of felt like group therapy because we were talking about such deep and personal issues and all supporting each other throughout this process of, you know, reflecting on ourselves and preparing to share such a deep and personal uh, experience with uh, with people we just met who are becoming our friends and eventually sharing it with an audience of complete strangers. I mean, it's, it's just been very moving. It's been very powerful. Um, I, I love it. I was not prepared for how hard it was going to be, <laughs> but I'm loving every minute of the process. Have you found, uh, like, I've done some live storytelling events, you know, kind of like the moth and, um, and certainly I do some of this on the podcast, right? Where the act of storytelling means you have to um, make small changes to the truth in order to keep things moving for there to be a thread that people can kind of cling to so that there's some cohesion. And so, you know, simply by the act of telling the story, there's an element of performance to it. And have you found that over the weeks, as you've been kind of exploring the story you're going to tell, that it's been it's been kind of growing and breathing and living and becoming something a little bit different so that you can really offer something moving and powerful to the people who receive your story? Definitely. Um, you know, each of our monologues started as some journal entries that we did within those first few weeks of... Uh, of talking about this and learning about this and going through all of that. Um, so from the very beginning, coming from, you know, pages and pages and pages of very messy journal entries into a, you know, five minute scene, there's obviously a lot of changes. Um, a lot of it is just cutting out parts of the story that, you know, I would like to tell, but there just isn't enough time for, and there's another part of the story that's more powerful or that makes more sense in this piece or that would speak to a wider audience. So you have to like sort of pick and choose which details you want to keep and which details you uh, can afford to throw out. Um, but I think anybody with experience with storytelling knows that process for sure. Um, so now that it's, you know, in a concrete scene form, it's a little bit easier to distance myself from it because it's like now we're just you know, there are lines on paper that we're all memorizing and it's a scene and, you know, I'm playing a character, even though the character is me and it is my story, rehearsing it over and over and over again, it's starting to feel more like this is the character I'm playing. It's me throughout, you know, my, from the time I'm 14 to the time I'm 28. <laughs> mm -hmm. I hear from listeners often and a lot of them share themselves with me because it feels like a safe place that has very low risk in, it, in being able to say, hey, me too, or here's my deepest source of shame. But I also hear from people who are angry, um, you know, and I've had the very fortunate experience of a very unique experience of, you know, having a show that's grown tremendously. And, you know, I've never really received a piece of hate mail, but I do hear from people who feel upset or angry because the things that I talk about make them feel defensive or uncomfortable. And I know that there's an audience kind of participation point in the play. 
And so there's definitely probably going to be people who see this and feel defensive because things about themselves are being highlighted that they didn't want other people to see. And then there's going to be other people who feel wildly validated and held. And so how are you all preparing for, um, you know, holding that space for the audience to have their reactions? For me, I, I think that I have plenty of experience with, you know, people having negative reactions to my existence alone, you know, as a plus size model, as being a woman who dares to be visible above a size four, um, (laughs) you know, I've, I've, I've gotten it, I've received it and I, you know, don't listen to it anymore. It, um, it just sort of falls on deaf ears. So I'm not really worried about that at all. That's good. It's, (laughs) It's something I've been thinking about. Um, as we prepare to do the talk back. So as you said, Dawn, after every show, uh, we're bringing on a guest uh, who's someone who has some you know, specialization in the field of gender and sexuality, and they're going to talk about how their work connects with the themes in the show. But also then we're throwing it out to the audience. And when we're sending out our newsletters to our supporters, you, you know, I'm writing, you know, this is your opportunity to talk back and share what you think of the show. And then I think to myself, what if it's a really horrible person in the audience? <laughs> who says something horrible to our actors. And because people are sharing such vulnerable material in the show, particularly in some cases, the last thing I want is for that sense of safety and compassion in vulnerability to, you know, be compromised. So I'm going to talk a bit to Hannah, our director, about that. But I imagine we might you know, try to frame that conversation before it starts to say that while this is your opportunity to give feedback on the show, really the point of the talkback is to continue that spirit of discussion. So we're talking about the issues or about the emotions rather than, you know, did you hate this scene? Okay. Yeah, giving people boundaries to play within, I think sounds like a really great way to help direct the conversation so that it's a little bit more productive if anybody's having having big feels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And people would be within their rights to have feels, I'd say, because there is some material in there that I think, you know, perhaps does need a trigger warning. Well, and I think that's like, that's something that is so... <sighs> I think that's something that's just so needed of we are a culture that only values certain types of emotions and then we see all other emotions as bad. And so we're all kind of hungry for places to actually have our feelings. And so I think there's something really beautiful in being able to give not only the performers permission to go places that might be really intense or really painful um, or maybe even really ecstatic, But then to also know that in doing that, the audience is going to potentially have a really intense emotional reaction. And I don't know, my hope is that the audience receives that as a permission slip of Mm. this is, this is powerful and I'm allowed to have these feelings, even if they're really uncomfortable or I wasn't prepared for them but let's be in these feelings together because this is important. Mm. These stories are important. So I hope that's how it's received because I think in my experience, at least people are hungry for places where they can actually safely feel big, scary things. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
So Jenny, I'd love to circle back really quickly. I know you just mentioned how (laughs) daring to be a woman who is also a plus size model that is very visible. You are very used to receiving uh, all kinds of comments from people who feel like they have a right to comment on your body. Um, It's something that I've talked about on this show at length of, you know, we have this bizarre culture, especially with social media, of feeling like we have a right to comment on other people's bodies or to tell them exactly what we think about them without even knowing them. And, you know, I think that so many people out there, whether they're trans or people of color or queer or whatever it is, you know, have a similar experience of kind of being terrified that if I step out, if I make this video, if I actually share myself with the world, then it's going to be met with so much vitriol and, and negativity and hatred because the internet as a general rule is not a very safe space for most people. And so I'm wondering like, how did you get to a place where you were able to actually just say like, this really isn't about me. This is just about the people who are saying it. I mean, what was that journey like for you? Um, I think, you know, I think mostly it just, it just comes back to for every one negative comment, I probably get a hundred or more comments from people who are saying, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for sharing your uh, insecurities. Thank you for being visible. Thank you for everything that you do. Because, you know, I saw a picture of you in a bikini looking like you were just enjoying yourself and super confident. And it made me feel better about myself. A lot of people have told me that because of some swimwear campaign that I've done that they saw me in, they had the confidence to wear a bikini for the first time in years. I've had comments from mothers who are thanking me for giving their daughters permission to exist, you know? Um, so for every one nasty comment where somebody's like, you need to eat a salad, I get like, you know, hundreds <laughs> of really, really amazing, powerful feedback. And I think that it just to me, that just means that it's it's worth it. I think that if you are any sort of person who doesn't fit, you know, that definition of normal that we talk about, and if you can, and if you have the capabilities, if you have the, um, you know, it's it's not easy, but if you're a strong enough person and you, you can make yourself visible, it's 100% worth it because... Um, you know, people who don't fit that normal idea need those role models. They need that inspiration. They need that visibility. So if you're able to give it, it's worth it 100%. And it gets easier and easier um, to just, you know, ignore the haters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that you said that because it's so true in so many different ways that the that having visibility and allowing the world to see people in a variety of identities and bodies living their lives and having ups and downs, but just like basically existing and being okay with existing, that they're out there because we're kind of told that people in certain identities are sad and lonely and depressing and no one should want to be like them. And, And so, you know, I love that simply by you stepping into the spotlight and allowing people to see you as you, that that gives other people permission. And I know 
Like for me, when I first started really confronting my fat phobia, one of the first things I did was I started following other people who were doing super rad work and being in fat bodies just so that I could kind of see like there's other people out there who aren't sad and, you know, in a hole under a rock just because they have a body like mine. They're actually doing really rad things and they have friends that love them. I had a chance to be at a talk with Chelsea Poe, who's a trans woman porn performer. And she's talked about how despite all of the gross stuff that she gets, um, it, it's worth it because she hears from so many other trans women who basically say like, I was going to, you know, end my life, or I felt like I was going to be alone forever until I saw you being so unapologetic and visible and just like living in your body on your own terms. And so like, we need more of that. We need to just see the variety and what's possible. And I love that you, you have found a way to be resilient around all the crap so that you can continue to show up for people and let them know, like, it's okay to be you. And I'm wondering for both of you, like, what what piece of the myth or what kind of myth that you know would you most like to see eliminated? Most people realizing like maybe this isn't true. What's the thing that you'd love to see people letting go of? Um, for me, I think that the most important thing that we absolutely have to debunk is that for women, it is it is, you know, of utmost importance to find yourself a man because so many, so many other problems come from that one idea that if you're, if you're a woman, you have to go find yourself a man to be happy. So many problems coming, come out of that idea, you know, for, for one, uh, that leaves anyone who's not straight, completely invisible. Um, for, you know, for two, it sort of, you know, makes you feel as a woman, like your happiness depends on somebody else, which mm -hmm. it doesn't. Um, I think that that, that's sort of, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg, sort of that, that idea. Um, and everything else falls out of that. Yeah. yeah. And I think another one that comes out of that is that it's, my partner's responsibility, my boyfriend or my husband's responsibility to please me. And it's kind of this passive, like, I don't have to know my body or what it, what I like and how to do it because I can just rely on this other person to figure it out for me. It's kind of that like wordless Hollywood myth of we just fall into bed and automatically know how to do the sex without talking about it. But I think it still comes from that place of like, you need to find someone and be partnered who understands you if they love you enough. And then all these magical things happen. And then on the flip side of that, this idea that sex is um, a big part of female duty. So that sex is not about pleasure, but instead about something that you do to, you know, quote unquote, keep your man, which while it seems so outdated, is still, I think, a really current myth at the same time. And I think also probably a major killer of heterosexual female libido, because what is the bigger turnoff when it comes to sex and the idea that it's something that you have to do? Yeah. Um, 
But if, if there's one myth that I would want to break, I'd say it's the overarching myth, which is, you know, this idea that the way that you engage with sex determines your value, whether that's, you know, sex as a barometer of desirability or sex as a barometer of, of morality or of normality. I think that that umbrella kind of, you know, covers so many of the anxieties that people have around sexuality, whether that's, you know, about whether or not you feel hot or about fear of who you're attracted to or about fear of, you know, being interesting enough or potentially too interesting or freaky. Um, all of that comes down to this idea that sex defines who we are and whether we're worth anything. Yeah. And I think tied to that, and you definitely touch on this in the book too, is, is kind of this, um, myth, which I think is a belief for so many people that sex is kind of like a peak human experience. Yeah. And so like, if we want to, you know, achieve our greatest pleasure, all of that comes back to sex and kind of not leaving room for maybe we can have peak ecstatic experiences and transcendence and deeper connections than we've ever had before without it being sexual. I think a lot of people don't even think that's possible. Yeah. And all of that's a very kind of mechanical view of sex as well. You know, this idea that it needs to be done a certain number of times a week or that you shouldn't. And, you know, these are real things that I've read in women's magazines or that you shouldn't repeat the same sexual position twice in a row because, you know, that's going to get things stale quickly. Um, And while that stuff kind of is presented as being fun and presented as being free. Actually, it becomes very, as I said, mechanical, something that's on your to-do list, pun not intended, rather than something that is actually fun to partake in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, so much of of everything that we know about sex is because we're being informed by all of the sources outside of ourselves, we're consuming the the magazines and the movies and the television and the stories that our friends tell, which we know are performances, but somehow still wiggle, wiggle their way in as to the thing I should also be doing. And, you know, it all comes down to kind of performing what we think sex is supposed to mean and feel like and be instead of, from the youngest of ages being taught to look within for like, what does my body most want? And what are my boundaries around this? And how would I like to be in this moment? And then allowing that to kind of dictate. I think that that would be such a beautiful place for us to start being in. But I think that's also a very scary place for people to be because then there's then you kind of have to rely on self rather than relying on other and just being able to do the comparisons and the judgments, which I think kind of offer comfort to us in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like if we feel like we have a rule book, then we at least have something we can follow and theoretically get it right. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I would love it. How can people find you, learn more about you, see what you're up to? You can follow me on both Instagram and Twitter. It's Jenny Runk, J-E-N-N-I-E-R-U-N-K. I'm also on Facebook. And um, you should also, you know, follow and check out my agency, Jag Models, because, you know, we're an agency full of women who are doing incredible things. Um, Very supportive agents. Um, Yeah. Awesome. 
just a quick interjection here. We actually lost Rachel at the very end of this call, and so we weren't able to actually capture her links and her sharing all of the ways you can stay in touch with her on the call. So she asked me to share all of this with you. You can learn more about the sex myth at thesexmyth.com. Please check out the newsletter for updates on the project and the play. You can also follow the sex myth at Instagram and Twitter for updates there. And then of course, if you want to stay in touch with Rachel, you can follow her on Instagram at Ms. Ms. Rachel Hills, or sign up for her tiny letter at tinyletter.com slash Rachel Hills. Well, I will also have links to all of your social media and to JAG so that folks can just check out the rad work they're doing. Um, for anybody who's listening, if you want to check out the Sex Myth book, I will, of course, have a link to that. And, of course, the play is happening in New York. It's only for five days. So if you're anywhere near New York and you want to see this amazing experience, please go check it out. You can learn more at sexgetsreal.com as well. If you have comments or questions about what we talked about today and or something you'd like me to cover on a future episode, you know I love hearing from you. There's a contact form on the website and you can send something anonymously too if that's important to you. Otherwise, I just want to thank you, Jenny and Rachel, for being here today. This was so fun. I loved geeking out just about like stories and stuff. Thank you. Yeah. And to everybody listening, thank you so much. I will talk to you next time. This is Dawn Sarah. Bye. Awesome. I will have all of those links on Sex Gets Real. And Jenny, your turn.